Proverbs chapter 5 is our goal this morning. We probably will not finish the chapter. There's just uh, a lot here to talk about, but we'll give it our best shot. We'll begin our examination of the chapter here today and may use next week to conclude it. But we're right in the middle of these first nine chapters, the book of Proverbs, the lectures that Solomon, the father, the author of the book of Proverbs, is giving to his uh, child, his son in particular, the, the named son in the scriptures would be Rehoboam. But we saw back in chapters one and two, the lectures or the topics, the subjects that Solomon wanted to pass on to Rehoboam being the associations of wisdom, careful who your friends are, the warning of wisdom to take heed to wisdom. And if we do not listen, then there is that coming day that we will be uh, you know, in the throes of difficulty and wisdom will laugh because we did not listen ahead of time. And so that's the warning of wisdom. The pursuit of wisdom, the prophets of wisdom is chapter two. Again, the father speaking to the son, trying to urge him on towards a life of wisdom and seeing the urgency of becoming wise. He goes on with that theme in chapter three, talking about the promises of wisdom, praising wisdom. And then he gives a very practical appeal for wisdom in chapter three. Then last uh, couple of weeks, we've been in Proverbs chapter 4, looking at this personal appeal for wisdom. This is the father, again, Solomon, speaking to his son Rehoboam, but he, he uses his own father as an illustration. He says, I learned from my father, so now I'm trying to teach you, so might you learn from your father? And so that personal appeal for wisdom is what we concluded our examination of last week in chapter 4. Well, today we're beginning chapter 5. And we'll see the main theme of this chapter is the peril of adultery, the peril of adultery. Now, this theme will actually be threaded through chapters 5, 6, and 7, though chapter 5 and 7 uh, are, are really the, the major areas of the book that emphasize this idea. But we'll see this, this theme for the next several weeks as we look through these, these three chapters from Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Right, and then, of course, we'll get to chapters 8 and 9, which is the final, it's kind of a longer uh, lecture, if you will, but it's the final lecture in those first nine chapters of the book. Lady Wisdom is there being uh, described and uh, put forward, right, the, the value of wisdom be, uh, being personified as Lady, Lady Wisdom. We'll, we'll talk about that more when we get there, but then, of course, we'll see the major shift from chapters 1 to 9. He changes from that lecture style format to now we'll see the, the individual Proverbs begin in chapter 10 and following, and that's where we'll take it more uh, topically as we address the various issues that the book of Proverbs addresses. But if you have your Bible, let's uh, look briefly. We're not going to read the whole chapter at once. We'll take it chunk by chunk, but our focus today is in Proverbs chapter 5, and I want to begin with just a basic introduction so that you can see how important this is, this chapter is, for life living for our culture, our day. And then we'll start looking at it piece by piece. And again, I don't know if we'll finish the chapter this morning, but we'll, we'll give it our best shot. So by way of introduction, so you see the, uh, the contemporary value of this chapter and the stats that I'm sharing with you were, uh, are coming from a study primarily in 2018, but by that date in 2018, the percentage of babies born out of wedlock was 40%. Just by way of looking by contrast, that number back in 1990 was only 28%. And again, these stats are pretty much the same around the world. Now, since 1973, there have been 64 million of these births. 
And it leads then, of course, to a, a slew of other issues. 60% of American marriages consist of those who lived together before they were married or have had multiple marriages and thus have divided families. These families experience more volatile relationships and violence in the home, and their breakup rates are five times higher uh, than the, the national average. Physical abuse and emotional abuse are also five times more likely in these sorts of homes. And these homes also have a two to, in some cases, up to eight times more likelihood to experience infidelity and have higher likelihood of drug and alcohol abuse within the home. 25% of men and 15% of women have cheated on their spouse by the time they turn 65. After interviewing 350 divorce, divorce lawyers, two-thirds of them said that internet pornography played a major role in the breakup of the marriages, contributing in their individual cases to over half of the divorces that they actually dealt with. The use of porn was almost non-existent as an argument in divorce trials till around 2015. That blew me away. But that didn't even show up, you know, in, in divorce proceedings. Now it, it consists of over two-thirds of the cases. The top five porn sites on the internet putting together consists of six billion visitors per month. The, that ratio nearly equals a once-a-month visit for every person on the face of the earth. Most children are exposed to pornography by 13 years old. 84% of boys between the ages 14 and 18 and 57% of girls at the same age have viewed pornography, and many will go on to form an addiction. As Warren Wiersbe points out, he says, sexual sin is one of the main themes of numerous movies, TV programs, novels, short stories. The list could go on. Yet popularity, I love the way he puts this, yet popularity is no test of right and wrong. Many things that are legal, right, that the law says are legal, the Bible says are evil. And there won't be a jury sitting at the white throne judgment, <laughs> end quote. I like that. <laughs> Thanks, Warren Wiersbe. That's, you know, what a way with words. But he says, it doesn't really matter what the culture says. There is coming a day where God's going to say, you know, and he's going to enforce at the great white throne judgment what is right and what is wrong. And so he says, we should know the wisdom of the scripture. Again, Wiersbe points this out. But this thread is going to be seen rather clearly in chapter 5 and chapter 7. It'll be present in chapter 6 as well. But as Wiersbe again puts it, he says, why worry about sexual sins? Well, these three chapters of Proverbs give us three reasons why we should worry if we break God's laws of purity. First, because sexual sin is eventually disappointing. That's really the big theme of Proverbs 5. It's gradually destructive. That theme will surface in chapter 6. And it's ultimately deadly. That's the big theme of chapter 7. That's why God says, you shall not commit adultery. So as we focus, again, as, and, and again, these stat, stats in particular go back to 2018. They've only worsened since then, though you know, some of the, the more current studies are still you know, coming out. But nonetheless, as we focus on these three chapters and this subject that will be threaded throughout them, let's focus this morning on chapter 5 in particular. And like I said, we probably won't finish chapter 5 this morning, but we'll, we'll see uh, what kind of progress we can make. We're going to break it down into three major paragraphs or, or the flow of thought, if you will. First six verses is what I call unmasking seduction, unmasking seduction. Then, uh, sorry, I think it blipped on me. There we go. So ch chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, unmasking seduction. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 14, weighing seduction. 
or as he says, ponder the path of your feet. And the word ponder is a pretty interesting word study. We'll come to it in a minute. And then, of course, the latter half of the chapter, verse 15 to 23, avoiding seduction. And as we'll see, that paragraph primarily deals with investing in our marriage. And so we'll see that's the primary strategy that Proverbs, that Solomon is giving to his son Rehoboam to avoid seduction. So that's our thought flow through the chapter. Let's begin by reading verses 1 to 6. All right, we'll, we'll just kind of take this a piece at a time and uh, see how far we can make it before the end of the hour. But if you got your Bible, follow along as I read. Proverbs 5, verse 1 says, My son, attend unto my wisdom, and bow your ear to my understanding, that you may regard discretion, and that your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell, lest thou should ponder the path of life. Her ways are movable, that you cannot know them. Pause there. Now, again, as we begin just that first paragraph of the chapter, I'm labeling it with the, with the heading of Unmasking Seduction. Now, Unmasking Seduction begins, according to our text, verses 1 to 2, with listening to wise speech, right? This is the father speaking to the son. We've seen this show up many times throughout these first few chapters. We'll see it many more times. But the idea is he says, my son, attend to my wisdom. Please listen to me. That's what he's saying. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. In other words, seduction, to unmasked seduction, to see it in its true color, it begins with listening to wise speech. Integrity and sound speech, in other words, is the first line of defense against adultery, according to these, these, uh, these verses. This is the father speaking to the son, giving him wise counsel and wise advice. So he says, listen, that you may regard discretion, that your lips may keep knowledge. Why? Well, verse 3, he contrasts wise speech with flattery or false speech. That's verse 3. He says, the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Now, we talked about this uh, a few weeks back, in fact. We introduced the subject of flattery, and let me just briefly review some of those things because it is here pertinent. But the Hebrew word behind flattery actually is the root that means to be smooth, to be oily, to be slippery. It's actually used of Jacob's skin in Genesis 27. Remember, his brother was hairy, but Jacob was smooth-skinned. This is the same Hebrew word that's used. Uh, it's also used in 1 Samuel 17 of David's sling stones. Remember, it says he went and he picked five smooth stones from the brook in order to go and slay Goliath. Um, but that's the idea of the smooth stone. It's used of a slippery place in Psalm 73, verse 9, or 18. And here it is used to describe slippery oil, right? But the idea is it uses that, that's the root word behind the word that's translated flattery. But what it means, what it's referring to, is that flattery is spoken with a double heart. In other words, there's false motives involved. It's where you say one thing, but you mean another. You bend the truth and you promote falsehood. Or as one scholar put it, it's merely fancy dishonesty. Flattery is fancy dishonesty. I love that. <laughs> but notice the goal of flattery is to boost someone's ego with a false sense of security and worth. 
However, Daniel 11 verse 32 will tell us that true wisdom sees through flattery. And so the, the author of Proverbs, Solomon, speaking to his son Rehoboam, is warning him about the nature of seduction and the danger of adultery, which he'll talk about, you know, again, threaded through these next three chapters in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. But he wants to unmask seduction by saying it's flattery. It's fancy dishonesty. Learn to see through it. Learn to see what becomes of uh, these false, you know, these, these bad choices, which is what he does in the next verse. In fact, he gives us, in my mind, one of the most potent metaphors in all of the scripture in this area. Verse 4, he says, right, because the, the lips of the strange woman, is, she's flattering, right? He, she her, it, it drops his honeycomb. Her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, if you're not familiar with this, when I first did a word study of this, it really uh, kind of blew me away. Uh, I was like, wow. It was just very insightful. But the term wormwood, if you're not familiar, occurs eight times in the Bible. I give the references to you uh, there on the screen. Deuteronomy 29, Proverbs 5, our text right here. Jeremiah uh, chapter 9 and chapter 23, Lamentations 3, Amos 5 and 6, and then the book of Revelation. We'll also refer to it in chapter 8. But if you're not aware of this, wormwood is a bitter herb native to the Sinai, but other varieties do exist in the land of Israel. Uh, but it was native to Sinai region. The Latin name is Judica. But wormwood is an herb. It's a bitter herb that on its own is very bitter. But it also is used to make absinthe. Now, that is a hard liquor, which at first leads to increased activity, pleasant sensations, and it fills the mind with grandiose ideas. Yet, the habitual use of this herb, and particularly in its liquor form, brings a stupor and a gradual reduction of intellectual faculties. It ends in delirium and ultimately death. So essentially, it's a psychoactive drug and a hallucinogen. Again, when you draw the lines, connect the dots, this is a powerful metaphor for illicit sex outside of marriage. Illicit sex is attractive and it's exciting, but it slowly makes you stupid and ultimately kills you. Right? That's, that's what it's telling us. Avoid it. It's like wormwood. It's smooth, it's sweet, it's attractive, and then it bites with bitter as wormwood. So what he says in verse 6 is he says you need to then consider your actions. Again, he, he's describing, we just read verse 4, her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. He says, lest you should ponder the path of life. And her ways are movable. In other words, let's, let's, I want to contemplate this for just a second. This is a key phrase that is, he's going to use twice in this chapter. He's going to introduce the you know, beginning of the chapter and then the end of the chapter. And he's going to kind of tie these ideas together with a repetition of this phrase. The phrase of ponder the path of your feet. Well, we just read it in verse uh, 6, right? Ponder the path of life. Then pop down to, uh, well, where does it show up next? I think it's verse 21, is it? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his goings. Right? There's the word ponder again. So it shows up twice in the text in the same chapter, verse 6 and verse 21. We'll also see it in Proverbs 16 and verse 11. Let me just read that real quick. 
Proverbs 16.11 says, A just weight and balance are the Lord's. All the weights of the bag are his work. The word weight and the word ponder is actually the same root word, the same Hebrew word. In other words, the, when he tells us twice in Proverbs chapter uh, 5 to ponder the path of life or the path of our feet, to ponder means to weigh something, as in putting it in a pair of scales, right? Can you, can you imagine that in your mind's eye, right? The idea of a, a pair of scales. And the idea is he says you need to weigh out life. And it's an idiom for considering something very carefully, in fact, this is a huge theme, as Wearsby points out, throughout the book of Proverbs. We won't go to all these passages for sake of time, but the book of Proverbs will emphasize the importance of looking ahead to see where your actions will lead you. That's the big theme. We'll see it in chapter 5 right here. Uh, this particularly looks at verse 11. We'll get to that in just a second. We'll see it in chapter 14, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 16, Proverbs 19, Proverbs 20, 23, 24, 25. It's a big theme through the book where, because that's in, in essence, it's one of the, the core concepts of wisdom is to learn. Remember, we talked about it way back in our introduction when we looked at the word prudence. Remember that? To be prudence, one of my favorite words in the book of Proverbs, because the word prudence is actually connected with the word in English. It's the word providence. And the idea is to forecast ahead, to see, to know the future before it happens, right? But a prudent man, a wise man, is someone who does exactly what uh, we see here in our notes. To, they learn to look ahead, to see where their actions will lead them. Oh, yeah, you got a hand up? Sorry. That's absolutely right, right? Where Belshazzar... He's been weighed in the balance and found wanting. That's exactly right. Yes, you got that? Think ahead. No, that's good. That's a practical way to learn. That's right. That's good. We're not to live life reactively, but proactively, to think ahead, to plan what's your next move. Right? That's the essence of wisdom, one of the, you know, the core building blocks to wisdom. That's what the book of Proverbs is teaching us. And it's, it's true in this regard as well, in this area as well, as in every area of life. We need to learn to look ahead, see where our actions will lead us. But our text tells us that the adulteress wants you to act impulsively rather than consider the outcome of your actions. It tells us again in verse 6, right? It says she, again, you got to connect verse 3 to 6, right? Verse 3, her, her lips are like a dropping honeycomb. Uh, her mouth is smoother than oil. Her end is bitter as wormwood, but she doesn't want you to know that, right? That's verse 6. It says, lest you ponder the path of life. For her ways are movable. And the idea of movable is unstable, not straight or safe, but dangerous and slippery. I love the way Charles Bridges uh, puts it. He says this, quote, Not only does she give no thought to the way of life, she is determined that no one else should either. She knows that the checks of conscience must be diverted. More on that in chapter 7. The, the 
the actual scene of seduction is in chapter 7. Very enlightening. But he says, sorry, back to the quote from Charles Bridges. He says, she knows that the checks of conscience must be diverted. No time must be allowed for reflection. The intrusion of one serious thought might break the spell and open the way of escape, end quote. What a powerful quote. Uh, I thought that was helpful. So he's telling us to unmask seduction. He's trying to help us see that there's, it may be sweet at the beginning, but it's bitter at the end, bitter as wormwood. So he says, you need to learn to ponder the path of life. So that's what then builds, it, it launches into the next paragraph. From verse 7 to 14 then, he basically said in the first six verses, listen to me, don't listen to the adulteress. That's what the father says to his son. Listen to me, not to the adulteress. Well, then he goes on to give some of that advice, right? right? That's verse 7 to 14. Let's read it. He says, hear me now, therefore, O you children, depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. Come not nigh the door of her house, lest you give your honor unto others and your years unto the cruel, lest strangers be filled with your wealth and your labors be in the house of a stranger. And you mourn, verse 11, and you mourn at the last when uh, your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to them that instructed me. I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. Stop there. Now again, uh, as I, and I mentioned this a moment ago, but this, this section is set up by those, the first paragraph after urging the son to listen to godly advice back in verses 1 and 2, Solomon now gives him godly advice in verses 7 and uh, following. In fact, you could, though we're breaking it you know, into these three paragraphs, you could see the rest of the chapter as his godly advice, where he's going to talk about how we need to avoid the seductress, verses 7 to 14, but then we need to invest in our marriage or our future marriage in verse 15 to 23. Right, so that's, his, that's the core of his godly advice. Right? Now, we just read verse 7 to 14, but notice, again, how he's saying, listen, verse 7, hear me now, depart not from the words of my mouth. So again, it's kind of repeating the theme from verses 1 and 2. He's saying, listen to me, listen carefully. Um, but he goes on, verse 8, remove your way far from her and come not nigh the door of her house. One uh, pastor by the name of Nelson put it this way. He says, lust and porn are like a tractor beam. They draw us in. So don't even go near, but keep a safe distance. That's what the author Solomon is trying to say to his son. Verse 8, he says, remove your way far from her. Don't come nigh the door of her house. Now, when we'll get there in chapter 7, what we're going to see is that the, the naive person that is ensnared in adultery, in chapter 7, is one that does go nigh her house, right? In other words, he was toying with temptation, and it snagged him. And so we'll see it in chapter 7. We'll see this theme come out all the more. But he's laying it down here. Remove your way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. Again, Charles Bridges is helpful when he says this. Quote, to thrust ourselves into temptation is to place ourselves outside of God's protection. The snare 
as it approaches, becomes more enticing. The voice of wisdom, therefore, is flee youthful desires, end quote. And of course, he's alluding to a New Testament passage where Paul tells Timothy to do just that. Right? I think it's 2 Timothy 2.22, right? Uh, flee youthful lusts. Why? Well, verses 9 to 14 is going to elaborate on the results of adultery, he goes on in verse 9 to 14 to describe how adultery will strip you of a, of a good reputation, of good health, and of all of your wealth. He says again in verse 9, he says, Lest you give your honor unto others, there's your good reputation, and your years to the cruel, there's your health, lest, well, and it may also be a, not just health, but allusion to your wealth as well, all your hard-earned money is gone, so you've wasted those years. Verse 10, lest strangers be filled with your wealth and your labors in the house of a stranger. In other words, as he, he uh, describes this idea of losing wealth, which is an allusion to several possible things, either to dying young and your wealth goes to others. Right? The idea is you, you die young because you were caught and put to death or murdered or uh, as he says in verse 11, um, yeah, when your flesh and body are consumed, he may well be talking about STDs, various things that lead to a shorter lifespan. So it could be losing wealth and leaving it to others might be a reference to you dying young, young and leaving your wealth for others. It might be referencing wasting your money on a pimp or in alimony, right? The idea here is he says your wealth will go to strangers, the idea is that there's, it may lead to broken homes, uh, to bastard children that you're now caring for, right? In other words, it, it can, there's a lot of different ways that that verse can be fulfilled, but the point is obvious. He says, you're wasting your, your life and resources. It will come back and bite you uh, to, to partake in adultery. In fact, the regret of, of said individual is expressed rather graphically in verses 12 to 14. These are the words of total regret. And as you've heard it before, and I don't even know where it first originated, but it's a famous saying that sin takes us farther than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more than we wanted to pay. Right? We always think that sin will be fun. And it is for that moment, that fleeting moment. The pleasures of sin are real, but they're for a season. And what happens afterwards is he says that that sweet honey turns bitter as wormwood. And the result is now we have to live with our choices. And so he's, we see that in verses 12 to 14. He says, in other words, when you have lost your honor and your health and your wealth, he says in verse uh, 11, You'll mourn at the last when your flesh and body are consumed. And you will say, verse 12, How have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to them that instructed me. Right? This is very parallel to what we saw earlier in chapter 1. The warning of wisdom. You remember that? Where wisdom gave us a warning to listen carefully. Because if we don't, if we neglect wisdom and we reject God's ways then there's coming a day that it's going to hurt and it's going to hurt bad. It's going to hurt long and hard. And you've all, again, this is a father speaking to his son. He's, he's trying to head the son off at the pass, 
right? He's trying to catch the sun before the sun has gone on to make these mistakes. But many of us have either made those mistakes or we know people who have. And we've heard the words of verses 12 and 13. I don't know. I, I mean, I've lost count, right? The old, if I could have a nickel every time I've heard this, you know, sort of thing. Uh, I, I've lost count of how many times I've heard verses 12 and 13. Someone say, man, my teachers told me better. My parents warned me and I didn't listen. And now I regret it, right? This is the father trying to teach these, the son these truths so that he can avoid the pain uh, of, the, of, of bad choices. In fact, verse 14, the idea of being in evil in the midst of the congregation or assembly is definitely referring to a loss of reputation, right? The idea of he's, he's surrendered his honor. That was back up in verse 9, lest you give your honor to others, right? The idea is your honor can be surrendered. It can't be stolen, but it can be surrendered. And that's something that he's, he is warning him of. But verse 14 may also be a reference to being wrapped up in legal proceedings, um, the idea of being in the midst of the assembly is used several times throughout the scripture to refer to sitting in the gate uh, of the city or being in the midst of a court battle because of adultery or bad decisions that has led to then this disintegration of the home and the resulting turmoil that, that comes uh, from that. So then notice in verses 15 and following, he, he gives us this positive aspect of after he unmasks seduction, he teaches us to weigh seduction, right? Weigh it in the balance. Say, okay, I have this moment of pleasure or, you know, and, and, and then it comes with all of the, the bitter wormwood results or I resist that and I receive the good. So he's now going to kind of shift from the negative side in verses 9, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7 to 14, to now the positive side. Namely, we are to avoid seduction by investing in our marriage and finding satisfaction in our spouse. That's verses 15 to 23. All right, so if you've got your Bible, let's read it. He says, drink water, verse 15, drink waters out of your own cistern and running waters out of your own well. He says, let your fountains, or this is this verse I'll talk about in a second, it's probably better translated as a question. Uh, so he says, why should you? Or, you know, it's a rhetorical question. It's not a command, it's a rhetorical question is the better way to take verse 16. But he says, why should your fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets? Let them be only your own and not a stranger's with you. Verse 17. Verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let her be as a loving hind and as a pleasant roe. Let her breasts satisfy you all the times and be thou ravished always with her love. Why will you, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord." And he ponders all his goings. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Now, as we work our way through this passage, again, he's going from the negative, right, of all the reasons why we should avoid it, uh, you know, adultery, the negative. In other words, this is the bad that will result from it. But now he goes to the good. He says, this is the good 
that we're losing out on and the good that we ought invest in in order to avoid seduction. Now, in verses 15 uh, and really all the way down to verse 18, 15 to 18, he uses an analogy that Solomon will use elsewhere. In fact, if you've been with me for our Song of Solomon studies, we've done that in a very, you know, varying different settings. We've done a, a book study through Song of Solomon. We've done, you know, a marriage uh, course through Song of Solomon. We, I've, I've gone through Song of Solomon in different venues, uh, and, and he will use the same idiom there. But to drink water from your own cistern or your well is an idiom for sexual intimacy and marriage. Wells were prized possessions in the arid ancient Near East, and these were worth finding and fighting to keep. So too is a wife. Drinking water from the well is here an idiom for this sexual union. You could go and see it's probably also alluded to in chapter 9, Proverbs 9, 17, but it's definitely alluded to in Song of Solomon 4 and verse 15. We see this same idea surfacing. Again, Charles Bridges is helpful when he says, quote, desire for forbidden pleasures spring out of a dissatisfaction with present possessions. Where contentment is not found at home, it will be looked for elsewhere, end quote. In other words, again, this, this paragraph in verse 15 to 23 is telling us the positive side of what we ought to invest in in order to avoid seduction. Now, I mentioned this as we read through just a moment ago, but some, uh, most translations will translate verse 16 as a question. It's not a command, right? He's not saying, go disperse your waters, right? Because he just said, don't do that, right? In verse 15. In other words, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, you guard your waters and enjoy them. He says, why would you spread them out and waste them, right? That's the idea. Rather, he says, verse 17, let them be yours alone and not a stranger's with you. Rather, he says, let your fountain be blessed, verse 18, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, that phrase, wife of your youth, is used several times in the scripture. I give you a couple of other references, Deuteronomy 24, Ecclesiastes 9, a couple of other places where we see it surface. But the idea is, it's a, it's a phrase that's referring to the wife of your youth as this special gift from your father's hand. In fact, in Proverbs 19, 14, God will so, go so far as to say, let me just read that real quick. Proverbs 19, 14 says, house and riches are inheritance of fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. A prudent wife is from the Lord. The idea is that it's a, it's a gift from God that we ought enjoy, that we ought uh, invest in, that we ought safeguard in fact, he goes so far in verse 19, and I'll keep it PG, but it's nonetheless a very graphic verse if you study it, particularly in the original Hebrew. But verse 19, he says explicitly, let her breasts satisfy you. He goes on to use the word ravished, which the, the root of that word in Hebrew is actually, it means to be filled, to soak in, to bathe in, or even to become intoxicated by. To become intoxicated, you don't sip, but you drink deeply. And this idea, the word ravished is referring to the ecstasy of orgasmic joy. That's what verse 19 is talking about. So he says, let her, let the wife of your youth be that source of, of orgasmic joy. Again, Charles Bridges is helpful when he rephrases or he uh, phrases it this way. He says, quote, whatever interrupts the harmony of this delicate relationship opens the door to imminent temptation. 
Tender affection is the best defense against the desires of illicit passion. End quote. I love that phrase. Tender affection is the best defense against the desires of illicit passion. That's helpful. Again, Wearsby puts it this way. He says, when married people honor and respect sex as God instructs them in his word, they can experience increasing enjoyment and enrichment in their intimacy. But when people break the rules, the result is just the opposite. They experience disappointment and disillusionment and have to search for larger doses of sexual adventure in order to attain the imaginary pleasure level they're seeking. God created sex not only for reproduction, but also for enjoyment. He didn't put the marriage wall around sex to rob us of pleasure, but to increase pleasure and protect it, end quote. He's absolutely right. I like the way he puts it. In fact, this is, this. Uh, just backing up a slide, the observation that Wearsby makes, this idea of uh, illicit sex bringing disappointment and disillusionment, which then results in the search for larger doses of sexual adventure. Uh, this is well known, well documented. This idea is sometimes called the law of diminished return. The law of diminished return is the idea is that you, you might get a high when you experience something new or novel, but when you go back to that thing, it doesn't give you the same high that it did before. And this can be true when it comes to sexual pleasure. It can be true when you, you know, in alcohol or drugs, anything like this, where once you have gone back and back and back, the same amount doesn't, you don't have the same response that you used to have. And so you need more drugs, more alcohol, stronger drugs, stronger liquor in order to get the result, the buzz that you're looking for. Same thing in the sexual world. This is well-documented. And that's why they, they can rate pornography from low you know, end to hardcore is because there's this difference where it starts small and it's, it's alluring, it's attractive, but before long, that doesn't work for you anymore. So you have to go, you have to up the ante, if you will. And, but it's this law of diminished return. As, as Wiersbe's pointing out, what you're experiencing is disappointment and disillusionment. That's the idea. It's not giving you what you thought it would and what it promised. And again, I love the way he puts it here in the next slide, but this marriage wall is not meant to rob us of pleasure, but to increase our pleasure by protecting our marriage and investing in it. So again, I already drew your attention to this, but notice as, as in this, this paragraph, he circles back to the idea of pondering the path of our feet. Why? Because God ponders our path. That's verse 21 to 23. Again, notice that repetition. He's saying, weigh it carefully. Do you want a God-honoring marriage? That, and again, if you've been part of our Song of Solomon series, I, I love getting to the end of the book because in chapter 8 of the book of Song of Solomon, right? Because you remember this, uh, for those of you who have been through it, I, I divide, it's not original with me, but I divide the book of Song of Solomon into four major parts, which is a, it's, a, it's tracing the life and the marriage relationship of Solomon and Shulamite. But the first section is what you might call the pursuit of love. The pursuit of love. They're, they're in their, uh, you know, that, that dating slash courtship stage. Well, then it goes from the pursuit of love to the promise of love. 
And so that's where they actually commit to one another. And there's the engagement scene and the wedding scene. And they make those vows of faithfulness to each other. And then it goes into the wedding night, honeymoon night. That's chapter four. So you go from the pursuit of love to the promise of love to the pleasures of love. And there's a lot of parallels from this, you know, our text here, Proverbs 5 and Song of Solomon 4. Well, then you get to chapter 5 of the book of Song of Solomon, and, and you enter the last stage of the book known as the problems of love. <laughs> and I think it's so fascinating, right? First half is all about, you know, pursuing and enjoying the pleasures. And then the last half of the book is all about the problem. They have a major fight in, in Song of Solomon chapter 5. And then the rest of the book is them digging out of that. It's restoring, it's repairing their relationship. It's putting the pieces back together after they had this massive fallout. But once they put their marriage back together, then they enter into, in chapter 8, it's, it's one of my favorite portions of the book, uh, of, of Song of Solomon. Because once you get to chapter 8, you, you, you see that they enter into this stage of resting with one another, enjoying one another, having gone through the hard times, having invested in their relationship, having worked through the brokenness in their relationship, there is now a, a sweeter, uh, you know, higher degree of, of intimacy. In fact, I point this out often. Every time I go through the book, I point this out. There's really two sex scenes in the book of Song of Solomon. Now, the subject is all over the book, but there's really two scenes. Chapter 4, chapter 7. But chapter 4 is the honeymoon night. Chapter 7 is when they reunite after having fought and put their marriage back together. But what is so profound, and, it, and we see it in a number of ways, the way the text is arranged, the way the, the word choices, uh, even the, descriptor, the descriptors. There's seven descriptors of Shulamite's beauty in chapter 4. There's 14 of them in chapter 7. There's double the amount. And what's the point? Is that the longer we're married and the more faithful we are to our spouse, the better sex gets. That's what it's saying. And it's so remarkable that, and again, there's testimony after testimony after testimony that I could give, that I've heard, that bear this out. But that's what the Bible is telling us, is stay true to your spouse. Invest in your marriage, and it gets better. But, so in other words, don't listen to the lie of the adulteress that says, this is better, this is sweeter. But then it's bitter as wormwood. It's disappointing. Nothing but disillusionment and hardship and heartbreak. So he says, don't go that way. So we must understand, you know, that difference and believe it and follow it. Yeah, you got a thought? Thousand nights and a thousand women for one night, which could be a 
but the point remains the same. Amen. That's, and that's exactly what Proverbs 5 is getting at. It's exactly it. So this is what I got to do. All right. I know we're out of time for today, but I'm going to set this up for next week. I'm happy we made it this far because this is what we'll talk about next time is we were able to, to basically march through the text so you can see the flow of thought. But I want to come back and I want to talk through some of the major principles that we see here that are fleshed out throughout the rest of the book. And so what we'll do and when we'll summarize kind of the Bible's sexual ethics uh, next time, we'll use chapter 5, Proverbs 5 as kind of a launching pad. And we'll talk about these three big ideas of understanding sex, understanding lust, and overcoming lust, and investing in our marriage. And so that's really some principles that I'd like to lay the groundwork because when we get to, again, chapter 6 is going to deal with it a little less because it's going to deal with a lot of other subjects. But then chapter 7 is going to come right back and revisit this theme. And these are the two... So, I mean, you know, aren't you glad you're here? <laughs> but this is the densest place anywhere in the scripture that talks about this idea. And it warns us against uh, adultery. It warns us about having true biblical sexual ethics. Uh, there's, I mean, the Bible talks about it in a lot of places, but Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 is the core of so much of the, the Bible's teaching on this. And so there's some really important stuff to understand. All right? So I'm out of time for today. We'll wrap it up, close with a word of prayer, then we'll transition for the next service, all right? Gracious Father, we thank you for the time this morning, but Lord, we, we come with heavy hearts, minds that are racing when we consider, Lord, the danger that we individually in our society and culture is in when it totally ejects biblical truth and biblical teaching in the area of sexual ethics. And when we ignore you and we ignore your word, it results in tremendous amounts of pain and sorrow and hardship and disaster. And we're watching it all around us. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us to take heed of these words of wisdom that Solomon is trying to pass on to his son, to, uh, for the son to, to learn these truths, to pursue wisdom in order to not go on and make mistakes that will cost him perhaps his own life. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn these lessons, to live them, to give them, Lord, to our kids, our grandkids, our co-workers, our whoever that, that you allow us to have this conversation with. Lord, we, we need to live according to your truth and give out your truth so people can experience your blessing rather than the bitterness of wormwood, the, the, the bitter struggle and destruction that that uh, bad and poor choices bring so lord we ask your blessing as we continue to study this subject might you guide and direct in what is said and done in jesus name we pray amen